Hello and welcome to a very special public service announcement edition of Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. I'm here today to shine the spotlight on a very important initiative, that of getting Art Collective and 2021 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees Devo elected into said hall. I am joined in this by Devo co-founder Gerald Casale. We're not here to convince you about voting for Devo, we're here to remind you to. Devo brought a revolutionary, or de-evolutionary, philosophy and aesthetic to rock and roll. They confronted, they critiqued, but most of all they entertained. Gerald shares some tales from his Devo days, what went into making the band, and even tells us about previewing their cover of Satisfaction for Mick Jagger himself. Please make sure you and your friends go to vote.rockhall.com to cast your official Fan Vote 2021 ballot for Devo, and up to four other nominees. You have until May 7th, but just go today. Thank you for your time, your attention, and support. And now, Devo's Gerald Casali. Here I am. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So we're, uh, we're, we're speaking on the occasion of uh, Devo's uh, most recent, and, ho- and I believe uh, final, uh, nomination to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> well, that could mean either way, you know, you know, um, but uh, I know what you mean. It, it, yeah. On the positive end, I hope it's final because it means we got in. Yeah. Yeah. Or if we um, don't get in, they will never nominate us again. <laughs> what does it mean to you to be inducted? What, what would it mean to you? Well, you know, I know a lot of, a lot of groups and, artists, uh, single artists and bands, they like to take this um, kind of hipster pose on, you know, towards the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame like it's, uh, you know, beneath them, right? Like Groucho Marx saying, any club that would have me, I won't join. Uh, And, you know, I understand that that kind of artistic pose that makes them seem cool. But I don't see it that way. And I do know at this point that the name is unfortunate Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because clearly it's not rock and roll. I mean, it could be, but not very often. It just has to do with noteworthy music that wangled its way into the zeitgeist of pop culture and, and endured, right? And, uh, and so any good music goes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, hopefully. A lot of bad music goes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, (laughs) but subjective. So what it means to me is that there's no artist, if they were being honest, that would ever say they don't want some kind of recognition, some kind of, you know, objective outside world indication that, that they did something worth talking about so that's how i look at it um yeah i i would owe it to the fans to make some kind of substantive little statement that night and uh play really good (laughs) and not have an attitude yeah it's funny that you you brought up the the groucho marx um 
quote because I was thinking about that earlier today and I was wondering um, if that was going to be an element of your response. And I, I you know, obviously I don't know you. I, I've, I've, I've read other interviews with you, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm relieved and refreshed to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it's my age. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm done with poses and, you know, strident remarks. Uh, so, yeah, I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the risk of being an armchair psychologist, is there an element of validation or belated acknowledgement for you all? I mean, you've had a you've had a storied yet um, not necessarily linear <laughs> career. And I wonder if, um, you know, does it, will it feel like a validation in some way or are you beyond that as well? Beyond that. Uh, I mean, I don't feel I have anything left to prove, but look, de-evolution's real. <laughs> Let's get that straight. De-evolution is real. And frankly, nobody is considering us for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because of our string of number one hits, Right. It's like when you look at Evo, it's like, well, wait a minute. They were hardly ever played on the radio, but they, we kind of did a backdoor entry into the culture because of the substance. No other, no other band, you know, wrote a body of work that was informed by a cohesive, articulated, alternate worldview, except Devo, I think. I can't think of any. So, yeah, there were bands that could play a lot more notes. There were bands that looked like leading men or leading women. You know, there are bands that could sing better octaves than Devo, but no one had our ideas driving the body work. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we were in our own lane, and that's what endured. And there's all kinds of people today that never bought a Devo record that want, you know, one of my red hats. <laughs> you know... <laughs> and so we got, see, we, we spread out and diversified and got beyond, uh, you know, a hit song kind of association. It's kind of a, you know, it's a viewpoint on life, right? It's a worldview. Yeah. Like Devo's an adjective, yeah. like he's Devo or that's Devo now, you know, that's really Devo. And you would hear people saying that. It's, you know, like, hey, Devo, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't be pointing at us. They'd just be pointing at some guy that was dressed different or it was 1980 and he had purple hair. Became synonymous with the outsider or disenfranchised people that were into music. And, and so it, it caught. It, it caught culturally. Did you, um, when you say it that way, did you at the time... Did you feel you had peers or were you and your comrades in arms sort of in your own self-contained universe? Was there a, was there an us versus them attitude or did you feel you were part of a larger thing? Well, the funny thing is I'd have to say yes to all three parts of that. that would sound contradictory, but certainly we were in a, we, we were in our own creative bubble. We were in a little feedback loop because we had to believe in ourselves. Cause when you're in Ohio, and you're trying to do something new and creative and original, you're, you're a target. I mean, people are either laughing at you or hating, at you, hating you or both. You know, it, you're not dates. <laughs> it's like those people are crazy. They're weird, right? So, yes, there's that element. 
because, you know, the baby needs nurtured, right? Needs some protection. And, uh, and then I always felt we were part of something bigger. I always was aware of the cultural and political forces that were making me, at least, you know, like talking for myself, making me say what I said and, and write the way I wrote and, you know, and like sounds that we were making. It was always part of some bigger idea. And, um, and I suppose I thought it was really valid. You have to, right? You have to believe in yourself. And I didn't think it was, uh, I mean, we were, we were humorous and we were satirical and ironic, but it wasn't, you know, weird out. It wasn't wink, wink, silly. It was threatening people. We were polarizing, but it was on purpose. It was thought out. Everything that was thought out, videos, everything, the way the costumes looked that I designed, the way we moved on stage, we, we practiced it. We rehearsed it. We were, we were going for it. And people would go, what the hell are you doing? You know, you're spending time on that. You know, you're pathetic. You know. What um, of all the things that that Devo is right? It's a band, uh, but it's a business entity. Um, I think you referred a few minutes ago as maybe you said an art project, or you you know it has an an art project component. Um, what is yeah. Devo first and foremost to you? I mean, there's a, it's a philosophy. What what what? what how do you? What's your self image of Devo? I it is more like a a philosophy or a, a meta worldview. You know, it's a meta, meta idea. <laughs> and it's all encompassed. And, you know, there should have been a Devo film. There should have been a Devo musical. Uh, there should have been Devo collaborating with uh, OXO kid products and making the Devo versions of a, of a cocktail mixer, right? I mean, it, because there was all of that. It was a multimedia idea from the outset. And film was always a core part of everything we did. And, you know, frankly, we didn't think we were going to band into a label. We thought yeah. we would make these shorts, these film shorts, and we'd be like the musical version of the Three Stooges. We'd, we'd put out this 12-inch laser disc, which is all there were at the time, and it won a year with these shorts, and they would, they would be driven by the songs we wrote, but there'd be a narrative. There'd be situations where we were recurring characters, just like the Stooges were, in these ridiculous situations. And that's what we were going to do. And, of course, what do you think happened? The three competing formats back then, so they cannibalized each other. Everybody had different catalog of content that they were offering and the public got turned off. The machines were expensive. If you bought the Pioneer one, you could only get these titles to play on it. You know, if you bought the RCA one, you could only get these titles to play on it. It was that that's not a business model. So it died. Yeah. So the our idealism about new technology fitting exactly what we wanted to do, that went away. And it didn't come back yeah. for years. What was it about the LaserDisc as technology? It was just a delivery mechanism for high quality audio and video, or was it the capacity yeah. of it? Or, yeah, all of that. It was like this is perfect yeah. for Devo. This is perfect. You know, 
we can we can get a feature film's worth of, of material on here and it's it's gonna sound really good. It's gonna look really good. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. were excited. What's the other Hall of Fame that Devo belongs in? <laughs> uh, the other Hall of Fame? <laughs> yeah, what are some <laughs> other Halls of Fame? <laughs> <laughs> halls of shame, I can think of. <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. Is Devo in MoMA? Oh, we do have a video, Beautiful World, which is one of the you know, my things that I ever did, I directed that and I still like it. You know, I, I don't cringe when I see that. I thought, okay, I did good there. (laughs) You know, I love that song and video and I love the way it works. And it's more relevant now than ever when you watch it because nothing's changed. That's right where we are. Yeah. It's one of those situations where it's not right. It doesn't feel good to be right. (laughs) No, you're right about, you're right about that. But you know what I mean? It's like the idea there was the world itself, the planet, nature is beautiful. It's, It's amazing. It's over the top. And there's no indication yet scientifically that there is any other planet that looks like this. (laughs) And it's only humans in their conflicted nature of this Jekyll and Hyde nature as a species that is out of harmony with the rest of where we are. And, you know, the, the violence, the killing, the environmental destruction, right? The suffering, subjugation of whole people by dictators. It's disgusting and disheartening, and it is the history of man. And now we're further down that road today than ever because we have 7 billion people plus going strong and really being like those humans, we're the virus, we're, we're the bugs, we're the creatures that are like decimating the planet like a plague of locusts. And it's more true than ever. And so exponentially ratcheted up on every level and you're watching it happen. It's, you know, it's totally frightening. Is that you practicing your acceptance speech on me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's really bring them down. (laughs) Well, one thing that that has always struck me about Devo and that strikes me about you, though, is that you can you can speak about these very serious existential societal cultural matters um, and speak to them with. Uh, you know, depth of conviction and integrity and insight, but um, there's there's a humor that runs through it that's not simply pathos. Like there's a, I, I you know I can I'm glad we're doing this over Zoom because you you have a gentle smile and you 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 feel like a warm person. And I wonder, has it been difficult to maintain that? Is it a and what do you attribute that? too that that essential sort of the ability to keep a light shining it's, it's my ohio-ness it's my ohio-ness because when when you grow up there you, you get humbled uh over and over daily you know by you know because it was a blue collar working class 
anti-intellectual, religiously evangelical environment. And these people don't very highly of creative people or people who are different. So you are constantly being denigrated, uh, uh, um, made fun of, threatened, you know, from the kid on the corner that wants your 25 cents out of your pocket, that you, you hey, he knows you have lunch money on your way to school, he's holding a tire chain, you know, what do you do? You give them your 25 cents and then they laugh at you. Um, it goes on from there, you know, the strict parents that, you know, when you ask them a question, why do I have to do that? And they go, because I said so. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you kind of are beaten down. People don't have high self-esteem. You know, they don't think they're cool and groovy. And so they either give in and become defeated, you know, or they say, no, I, I'm going to rebel. I'm, I'm going to believe in myself. And I'm going to stick to it. But, it. but it's a process, right? It's like boot camp. It really is like boot yeah. camp. And you're coming out the other end of it. And that's exactly what I did. And I, when I did, then I had this huge helping of, of uh, disdain for illegitimate authority of every kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in your pre- Devo musical life. I know, you know, I've heard you talk about it and you, you, you know, you, you played what I would, I hope it's not offensive to say sort of more traditional rock music, sort of blues oriented guitar and rock. Is that fair? Yeah. yeah. Blues. You know. you know, I was a working class white kid that wished he was black because I was appropriating their music and loved it. And, um, yeah. And, and, you know, I played in a blues band, the, uh, they were called the Numbers Band of 1560-75. The lead singer was highly regarded in the whole Cleveland Akron area, Bob Kidney. He never never made it out of there, but he was incredible musician, fantastic, charismatic performer, great singer, uh, harp player. He could play like Little Walter, really good. And he had really good sidemen. Terry Hine was the saxophonist, Chrissy Hine's brother, her older brother. She used to come around when she was 13 and 14 and listen to us rehearsing. And she wanted to get up on stage and play and he didn't let her. So she'd say, fuck you and storm out of the club. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it wasn't that many years later that, you know, she turns up in England with a hit band. So she was serious. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I loved that music and Bob Kidney really educated me about the history of that music. He had a collection of vinyl that was unprecedented and he had all these, you know, records on the Imperial label, VJ records and stuff recorded in the fifties. Uh, so we'd sit down and listen to, you know, Slim Harpo and, and, and Muddy Waters and, and uh, Johnny Hooker and Little Walter and, you know, hours, nightly going by and then trying to learn those licks and play them with as much feeling. You find out this music you're listening to that you think is so simple is actually the hardest to play. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But then, That's you know, then I felt guilty about it. Player. I felt guilty about it because I think I'm just, I'm just imitating 
you know, this black music, uh, and, and you start to, you know, you're, you're in college and you're talking with people about, and so even then there was that beginning of being woke, right? And like, this, is, this isn't right. So you better do your own thing. Like, what would it be, you know, if you felt your own blues, what form does that take musically? What lyrics are you going to sing? You know, you're, you're not going to sing like a, a, a black guy in his 20s that's telling all the girls that he's, you know, he's going to line them up and screw them, you know. It's, crawling kinks. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I felt embarrassing. So that, that's when I met Mark, and, and he was playing prog rock. You know, he had his band called Flossie Bobbitt, and they were trying to play as many notes and time changes as they could in three minutes, you know. And I thought that stuff was pretty wanky. And we were both visual artists, and we did really respect each other's art. And we really got off on talking about and, and sharing things and making things together. So I said, well, you know, I got this art movement here, Art Devo, and uh, what if we did Devo music? Like what would, what if we apply being artists to the music? Like why shouldn't our music be art? And he liked that. So we jettisoned everything and said, if it sounds like blues or Oh, it sounds bad company or it sounds like um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer. It's over. It's, that's getting chopped. We're going to strip it all down. Pablo Rosa, start from the beginning. And we'd actually say, why is there a change here? Why are you changing after eight bars? You've got to be able to say why, or you're not going to change after eight bars. And that's how stuff like Jocko Homo came about with this, you know, 10 minute long chant at the end and, it was this pulsing and this hypnotic repetition of, are we not men? We are a depot. So we suddenly had a mission and we suddenly had something that we just couldn't stop doing. And the more we laughed, the more we knew we were on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> That's the litmus test. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Did you have musical kin? Did, you know, like fellow inductee or fellow nominee this year, like Kraftwerk. Did you pay attention to what was going on like that? Do you did you look to Kraftwerk and saying, oh, they're applying a, a European sensibility to the same thing we're doing? Or did you, you know, eventually I mean, you look around the Kraftwerk, landscape? Well, Kraftwerk's a good example, because when we when we became aware of Kraftwerk, we were into years of Devo. And I kind of shit my pants like, oh, no. There's enough similarity here, although not really, that the public's going to think we're ripping these guys off because they were further along than us. You know, they had records out and they were famous in Europe. And, and you have to get over that and go, well, okay, we're going to keep developing what we're developing and it, it, will, it will distinguish itself, right? But yes, I was listening to every god. Uh, and that's, that's another thing Mark and I shared. We, you know, we were listening to anything we could get our hands on, including pop music at all. We were really into Morton Sabotnik and early Wendy Carlos and experimental uh, electronic music and uh, Harry Riley, you know, all that stuff. And, um, 
and the stranger kind of classical or post-classical music that was going on. Um, and we were fond of really terrible music on commercials because it was so diabolically kind of manipulative and stupid. You know, we were kind of aping that, but twisting it and appropriating it, but nevertheless affected by it. We, we saw how effective it was. And so the early videos I was directing, I was, I was imitating cuts that I saw in McDonald's commercials and things like that and mixing them with all my favorite angles from the doc cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where I love German expressionism. So we were very aware of the history of art film and film noir, German expressionism, and all the experimental films that our professor uh, Richard Myers at Kent State University single-handedly created a film school there. And he would bring in all the art films from the East and West Coast, New York, Berkeley, from San Francisco, guys like the Kuchar brothers, you know, with these really dark and funny and crude film shorts. But a lot of them had politically, um, you know, radical themes, and and also a lot of more really funny, darkly funny. So we 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 were just absorbing like sponges all these influences that we thought were super original, were exciting, and picking and choosing from there to find something we wanted to do. And I think our Midwesternness and industrial Cleveland Akron experiences were all over our music. <laughs> I think, they, you know, it stained it beginning to end. <laughs> I love the notion that, um, that the Akron sound is less about a sound and more about a reaction to not wanting to follow that sort of career path of grab the lunch pail and go into the factory grounds and go do your eight hours and, and sure. live that life. Um, it's so, um, because it, it allows for so much, it allows for much more breadth of, of genre and style and, and diversity of voices. Um, and I assume by your nodding, you buy into that, that you sort of buy into that narrative. Yeah. Oh yeah. you got, you nailed it. I mean, because you had the corner and you weren't going to get out of Akron and you were going to become something that you were trying to run away from. It was going to get you and you weren't going to have a choice because a lot of people have a lot of dreams. And in the end, you watch them give up and they go in life of uh, whatever it is, quiet submission, basically. Uh, right. Uh and so I had a real sense of urgency and almost oh, of not making this work. So I was like the field marshal that used every bit of my, you know, conscious, rational brain, every connection I had to anybody and, and listened to what I should do. And I read books about the music business and, uh, God, what's his name? The one that wrote the most famous one, uh, Clive Davis. And so I already encountered the, um, you know, the snakes and weasels <laughs> that we encountered immediately when we left Akron and went to New York. You know, I knew what a bad deal was. I knew to keep your publishing. 
I knew not to let a, a manager have a 10 year long deal at 20%. Uh, I knew these things. And, and of course, I immediately got targeted as the guy that was difficult because they were looking for a pliable, manipulable character like out of Pinocchio, high diddly deeds, the actors like for me, and you know, let's dance him off to Pleasure Island here and <laughs> become a donkey boy. Uh, I wasn't going to be a donkey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you do the work of Devo? Like, is, and, or, or let me say it differently. Is Devo's work done? Is there, is there a next for Devo? I would certainly like to think so, but I think, you know, I'm a one-man band there. Um, Devo was an art collective, and Devo was all about the Musketeers and for all, all for one. And, you know, that's what, that's what made it so exciting. We shared everything, share musical ideas, open our notebooks and look at, look at lyrics and then start seeing which things excited us most. And it was very democratic. We'd start working on things, even the members of the band who weren't really songwriters like Bob Casale, Bob, Bob Mothersbaugh, Alan Myers. They were really contributing a lot to their aesthetic and personal style and they were supportive. Most people, we could, you know, we had brothers, right? That was an advantage. They under people in the outside world that would have tolerated the whack shit we were asking them to do. I mean, they, they would have, that's not part, you know? So it was fun. I mean, you don't get a song like Satisfaction unless you have this band that's all right there and present. Because if somebody starts playing, most people aren't going to go, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got that one. <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> you know, and then when Alan adds in the drum that's backwards, like reggae, where it's not on the one, then, you, you know, it was, it was like polymorphic mathematics. It was architectural music. There was no groove to pump your, you know, hips to. So, you know, it, pretty soon I joined in on the bass on that. And I'm trying to glue the two parts together between the guitar part and the, and the uh, drums. So I start playing what I think is a reggae version of Satisfaction. Because I love the song Satisfaction. And... Uh, the guys didn't even recognize it at first. Then my brother did, and he yells out to Mark, sing Satisfaction. So Mark starts singing Satisfaction over this. And it glued it all. And then Bob Mothersbaugh started just going, dun, 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 all on eighth notes. Guitars sound like some, you know, pointillistic synth. And so we, we played it for a couple of hours because we couldn't stop laughing at the riff when it all, you know. And so it was, it's experimental, right? And so you're asking me about Devo going forward. I don't think Devo today could get in a room and be that open and spontaneous to do anything like that. I just don't mm. think so, you know. People have decided who they are and what the hierarchy is, and and it's multiplying to creativity. Yeah, 
and the openness you're almost couching it as um it's a necessary ingredient or a, a prerequisite of what devo does or what devo's process is i think that's what people are hearing i don't think you'd hear what people think of as a devo song unless it had come about through that creative process One of the funniest things um, in my mind about about satisfaction is that it's a song so so known for its riff, right? It's iconic, simplistic riff, and and the and the the way that the way it was devolved, it's just, I, yeah. it's it's like endlessly well, you're, amusing. You're, well, you know, it got us in big trouble. First of all, you're right. It's you know, people didn't understand what de-evolution was. We're hearing some of our original songs, didn't know what to make of them. But satisfaction is one of those, here, proof of concept. You want to know what de-evolution is? Here, we didn't even know what we were doing because the word at that point in time in the culture of deconstruction wasn't there. No one in the art or in the music world was talking about deconstruction yet. That's exactly what we did. We, we deconstructed the Stone song. We weren't doing it to make fun of them, but boy, did, did the suits and the gatekeepers think so? You bet. And in particular, and this has kept coming to me third hand as we moved on in life and knew more and more important people in the music business, told me Jan Winner had towards Devo from the beginning just because we sullied his temple of rock and roll, which was the Rolling Stones, the name of the newspaper, and his favorite song. And he thought that it was disrespect baseball, right? And he never, no one could get him off that jag, even though they, they told him and he knew the story us flying Mick Jagger, playing it for him, getting his permission, because the publisher had decided that we were doing a parody. And back then, intellectual property was taken seriously enough that you had to then get the artist's permission, the writers. And Mick, you know, we're in Peter Rudge's office in the winter in New York, and Peter Rudge got a Savile Row three-piece suit on with a paisley tie, and one of those nasty business shirts where it's a pink button, white collar, real starched. He's got a fireplace going, brown club chairs, making small talk <laughs> with us and obviously looking at his watch. And Jagger finally shows up and he's sleeping somewhere in this building on, you know, near the Warwick Hotel because he's not got any shoes on. And he's just got like a velour turtleneck on and some pinwheel corduroy flared pants. And he sits down in a club chair and he asks for a glass of Clorette, and, which is, you know, basically a Bordeaux blend, right? And it's a light Bordeaux blend. And, of course, Peter indulges him, opens up a cabinet, gives him a glass of Clorette. Jagger says a few nice things to us and goes, let's hear it down and starts drinking the wine. And Mark puts it on the boom box on the mantle of the fireplace. And Jagger's got his head down, got his head down for about 25 seconds. And we're going, oh, man, he can't even look at us. He doesn't like this. And he puts down his 
recline on the floor, and he gets up, and he starts dancing around like Mick Jagger, like everything you've seen Mick Jagger do. He's in his stocking feet, so he can eat in front of the fireplace. And he kind of spins a bit and looks back at us and goes, I like it. I like it. <laughs> and it was a great adventure. Like, we're not worthy, you know. And it, but it was such a triumph. We're going, yeah, you know. So it was all done. So Warner's was a record. And we flew back to L.A. Uh, that following Monday. We go to Elliot Roberts' office. Just Elliot is our manager. Neil Young had hooked us up with him because he managed Neil Young. And we go in all excited to tell him the story. And he goes, I know, I know. I heard, I heard from Peter. I talked to Peter. Yeah, Mick liked it. He goes, but see, I talked to Peter before you there. I told him to tell Mick. liked it because you guys are going to make Mick a lot of money because they retain all the publishing. <laughs> it just deflated us. <laughs> yeah, I love that he felt compelled to tell you. You couldn't even, you had your moment, I guess, oh, on the flight back, sure. and that was enough. <laughs> yeah, Elliot liked to do that. Like, you know, keep the artist in line. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. He did all right with Neil, though. He gave me a lecture once. Uh, when we were complaining about how Warner's was treating us, he goes, look, Jerry, you think trying to do good work is what matters. Um, that isn't what matters. <laughs> what matters is relationships, right? Anyway, he was, you know, it was like, you know why Ronnie Dio got so far? <laughs> like, we were like, Ronnie Dio, what the fuck? But that's what he liked to do. Like, he thought we Ronnie were Dio, huh? You got you got lectured about Ronnie Dio. I love that because yeah. <laughs> Ronnie Dio was immensely successful. It proved you didn't have to have original music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he had some Elliot concepts. We were art monsters. He was trying to like let's corral this art a little bit here, you know. I see. I would think you guys would be a match made in heaven for each other. He basically spent his career. I mean, you know, I guess, I guess what allows Neil to pursue his, his crazier artistic impulses is that when he really needs to, he pulls the, uh, the rabbit out of the hat and delivers them a hit. He can do it. And it buys him another five or 10 years to, yeah. Right. Then he can go fuck around right. again. <laughs> right. Yeah, he was an amazing guy because we had no idea what's going to happen when we met him. We, our, our preconception of Neil Young was completely wrong. We just thought he was this kind of grandfather of granola rock, kind of hippie guy. And he was so much more complex with a great sense of humor and an intensity. And, uh, you know, quite... <laughs> And it was uh, was fun, and he and he loved Devo. We never thought he would love Devo. We thought, what the hell, you love? <laughs> but then we understood it. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, so when the induction happens, I can yeah. say it. You can't. <laughs> who will be on stage and who will perform? 
Well, of course, there's only three of the original Devo members left alive. Uh, my brother is deceased and Alan Myers is deceased. So for years now, we've been drumming with Je uh, Josh Freeze. And Josh Freeze is just a tremendous, tremendous drummer. And he's one of the only guys we ever met who could channel uh, um, Alan Myers' intensity and precision. Because Alan Myers was like a human metronome. And and Alan, you know, drummed like with some so much economy, you didn't even see how hard he was all with the wrists on like most drummers because of the way he had learned. So, for instance, not to belabor that, when suddenly Devo got, you know, um, enveloped by the commercial world and people started wanting to use Whippet in commercials, one company wanted a, a parody and we most bands won't let companies do parodies and we said oh great can we help you write the parody <laughs> and and can we sing it they go yeah so we got out we got out the and they wanted to use some of our video too so we got out the original tracks and beat mapped alan's drums he only varied two BPMs from when he started, and that happened in the bridge. And then by verse three, it was back to exact BPMs of, of, of the song and ended that. There were click track. No, there were, all the songs then were real, no click tracks. We couldn't believe it. I mean, he always felt like that to us anyway in rehearsals, but that's how good he was. <laughs> and so, you keep looking for another drummer like that and you're disappointed, but Josh Freeze, do it. Oh, that's amazing. So he'll be there. That's amazing. And then um, our front house sound guy, Paul Hager, no relationship to Sammy Day, Sammy Hager. Uh, he's, his brother is a, uh, a guitarist who lives in Boston and who's played with, uh, Shadow Party and uh, um, God, who's the band that took over from Joy Division when the lead singer oh, Ian Curtis killed himself? Who? New New Order. Yeah, he played with them. He's played with other bands, and he and he, big Devo. He knew he had practiced Devo all his adult life. So, and he has no you know, about it, he just loves it. And so he took over my brother's parts because he does a very, very good facsimile. Yeah. Because Bob, strange parts, I mean, people didn't realize how strange they were, just like satisfaction. That's a very hard part to play properly, believe it or not. So anyway, yeah. those would be the Mark, uh, Mother's Bob, Bob, Mother's Bob, myself, Josh Freeze, and... Uh, Josh Hager. Yeah. And maybe, and I think, Boogie Boy should show up. Uh, <laughs> well, I have to say, I was a little disappointed that it's not going to be Sammy Hagar. I think that would be kind of... <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe he could just take over his lead. <laughs> maybe we could give him I, the I always he wanted, could, He could I, wear the Boogie Yeah, you know, he could change it into a hit, right? You know, like uh, I always wanted Axl Rose to cover Freedom of Choice. 
always wanted oh. Axl Rose. I just heard him doing it like in their style. Freedom, but you yours, but you mine. You know, <laughs> he'd sell it. It would be a hit. It would have been a big rock hit. Uh, maybe that's the next thing you need to produce is the uh, is the 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 non obvious Devo cover album. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Please do. Where that. You have peacock and roll versions of our songs. <laughs> you know what? Maybe that's the next thing you need to do to pander to the hall is just have all previous Hall of Fame inductees record Devo's. I say now I can, can we get them in? to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I could get them to do. It. Yeah, well, um, it's I, I really appreciate you making time um, to talk to me and for your generosity with your stories and uh, and for years of entertainment. I mean, um, it's it, it's it's comforting to have people like you and people like Devo in the world um, to help make sense of it all. So thank you. And that's something I forgot, what you just brought up. We did entertain people. People tend to forget any discussion. We, we, were, we made people go manic. They weren't angry. They were laughing and jumping around manically. We were entertaining them. They would never sit down. You know, theaters with seats like the Universal Amphitheater, song one, up, never sit down. Some people hear art and they think I have to eat my vegetables. I'm <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, um, thank um, you again. Uh, and uh, did you vote? Did you vote? Did you make your? Did you submit your ballot? I'm allowed to. Oh, I don't am know. I allowed to? I hope to? so. I, I didn't not? realize that the inductee was allowed to vote for themselves. <laughs> it's America, I mean, man. Come on. <laughs> Yeah. Do you have any friends in Russia? Yeah. How many times? <laughs> Trump? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for all your time, by the way. You you yeah, probably have your of. choice of hundreds of people to talk to all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm grateful to be able to be part of telling this story and um and making sure that right is done in the world a little bit with this situation. So um, I'm going to look forward to to seeing you on stage. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gerald Casali and all of the members of Devo, past and present. And now it's your turn. Go to vote.rockhall.com and cast your official Fan Vote 2021 ballot for Devo by May 7th. Or just go right now. We'll be back on Tuesday with a regular episode of Spotlight On. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Fan